0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 uh, to verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Then in John chapter 1, in verse uh, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me Because he was before me, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Um, We're looking at, at... Christmas really celebrating the Incarnation, and we talked a little bit last week why we don't just celebrate just the birth of Jesus, as important as that is, but we're really celebrating uh, what it means that God became man in the Incarnation. And of course, the one side of it is that Jesus is fully God, and we talked about that last week, a lot of what it means that uh, that, that God the Son was the eternal God who created all things, who existed before the world began. Uh, from which and by which all things came into being. Uh, the other side of that, though, is that Jesus was also fully man. Um, and uh, John, John fourteen through uh, one, fourteen one fourteen through eighteen, really points to that side of the equation: fully God, fully man. So I want to look this morning at really what it means that Jesus was was a was a person. Uh, and uh, the, the gospel narratives really help us do that. The stories of Jesus' birth. Because they're, um, they're this miraculous event, but it's really about a real, life, living person. Right? It's about Jesus. And, of course, uh, as we just read in, in Matthew, uh, it says that he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, his, his conception. And we call it the virgin birth. It actually was not technically a virgin birth. That's kind of a Catholic thing. It's a virginal conception. In other words, Mary got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, not be, by having sexual intercourse with a man. Uh, that really points to his fully God side. This is something that God did as God imparted his spirit into this human uh, single cell uh, in Mary's womb. But the rest of the birth account really points to his flesh and blood humanity. Um, Jesus has a real mom who carried him for nine months in the womb and gave birth to this tiny little newborn baby who was helpless and in, in the stable. Um, Jesus had a real father. Uh, now, he wasn't, of course, his biological father as we just saw, but, but Joseph adopted Jesus as a son. And that's a lot about what the naming is about. Uh, when, when Joseph named him, it's an official rite that made Jesus his adopted son. And in Matthew, you get this lengthy genealogy, which we love to read. My favorite part of Christmas, right? Christmas morning, you get at your Bible, you read the genealogy. Come to cheers, right? And Abraham begot Jacob. Oh, it just gets me every time. Isaac, actually. Um, <laughs> Got to get the facts straight. Um, you know, this genealogy shows that he was, he was from a family line with a dad. Who, who, and, and, and because of that, Jesus had a, a legal right and claim to the throne of David. Right? He was a descendant of King David. That's what a lot of that is about. Um, so all of these things point to Jesus being a person. But not only that, not only he was a real person, but he was a real person who lived in a very real family. Right? Life for Jesus was life like a lot of us. How many of you come from a perfect family where your mom and dad were just perfect? Well, really was going to say he's perfect, but if I put his mom and dad in there, that just threw it all off, right? Uh, Jesus' family was not perfect. His mom and dad struggled with things. Uh, And we don't really know a lot about what their family life was as Jesus was growing up, but we do know what it was like when he was conceived, right? Uh, Mary is pregnant, and Joseph knows he cannot be the father. Uh, And in his mind... Mary has to be guilty of adultery. Because how else does this happen, right? Um, And so he, uh, to maintain his own righteousness, regardless of how much he may have cared for Mary and and actually had love and care for her, uh, in Jewish custom, to maintain your own righteousness, to do the right thing, he couldn't marry her. Uh, But he cares enough about her that he doesn't want to publicly humiliate her. So he decides in his mind to divorce her quietly. These are t- tough struggles for any couple. Right? And that was Mary and Joseph. And for Mary, it's more than just an embarrassing situation. In, in Jewish culture, to be pregnant as a virgin like this, is, or as an unmarried maiden, is, is devastating. Right? It is devastating. Um, and so it's a real human struggle with very real human emotions as they agonize over this, this whole event that God put on them. And of course, in the story, we know that the angel shows up to explain the matter to Joseph. And Joseph, who's the kind of guy who wants to do the right thing, he he does do the right thing for Mary. And on the word of the angel, he takes Mary as his wife. uh, And he adopts Jesus as his son. And and then he gives Jesus a name. Jesus is a real person with a real name, right? Jesus. And the angel explains uh, the meaning of the name uh, means God will save his people. And it expels out uh, something of Jesus mission. Um, so from very conception in the womb uh, to His very last breath on the cross, Jesus is in every way a real human being with flesh and blood, in a real family and a real broken world. Um, so what we want to look at today is, in, in light of all that. if that 's true. If Jesus is fully God, but also fully man. Uh, what is the point of it? Right. Why does God choose to come to earth in this, this incarnation? Uh, why not just show up as like he had before, many times in the Old Testament, as a theophany? But a theophany was not real flesh and blood. It was just a hologram. Right? God kind of showed up in an image that he could talk and communicate with people, but he wasn't really human. He was just a, an appearance. Why not just do that? Why is it necessary for God to come and unite his divine nature and being with a real life human flesh and blood. Well, if I were to ask each of you that question, um, maybe I'll do that. No, I won't. Uh, What would be the answer to that? Why was the incarnation necessary? What was the goal or point of the incarnation? Well, probably what most of us would say and the common answer is that well, it's to save us from sin. right? God came to earth, poured himself into a live human person, uh, because he wanted to save us, and of course the angel just said that. That's when that's in Jesus' very name. Uh, it it's a picture of that uh, saving work and mission of Jesus, um, and and indeed, uh, the incarnation made was the only way that an adequate and sufficient sacrifice could be made for sin. Right, the lambs and the bulls and the sheep and the goats that had been offered over and over again for many hundreds and thousands of years were not an adequate sacrifice for sin. And that's why they had to be offered repeatedly. Uh, And the author of Hebrews tells us they just point to the perfect sacrifice, which was Jesus. Um, But Jesus was a sufficient sacrifice, not only because he was human, but because he was God. He was perfect. He was blameless. So without a doubt, God's gift of salvation was made possible by the Incarnation. But I would say that that's not actually the main end goal or point of the Incarnation. There's more. Right? Jesus' death was necessary and it was one important reason why He came. But His death was a means, not the end. Right? The end was something beyond just Jesus saving us. And to really understand the Incarnation and also to understand really what, what is to be the goal and purpose of our life, We need to be clear about the great purpose and chief end of the Incarnation. And both Matthew and and John will help us answer that question. And I'll give you the short answer. I'm not going to leave you in suspense. I'll I'll give you what I think the answer is, and then we'll look at it. The chief end of the Incarnation was so that God could be with us and so that uh, we could know Him and see His glory. Right, so, the, so the Incarnation really accomplishes three incredible things. First, uh, Jesus died for our sins. Okay, that was made possible because God became flesh. Secondly, uh, now, because of the Incarnation, God can dwell with us. And we'll see that Matthew says that, of course. And thirdly, uh, through that, we can comprehend something of what God is like in all His glory. Uh, and and here's, here's what I want to really t- talk about this morning. I think oftentimes we get so focused on the means of salvation, the cross, Jesus' death, that we miss the real point of salvation. So let's let's look at this, what this means, and and how the Christmas narrative helps us keep the right focus of Jesus' purpose in coming. Um, So first of all, God with us. What does it mean that, that God is with us? Um, well, as we looked at the story just now with Joseph and Mary, at the end of, of, of Joseph's encounter with the angel, he gives uh, to Joseph the name Jesus. It means he, literally Yahweh saves his people. And the angel actually tweaks it a little bit. Uh, the name literally means Yahweh saves his people. But the angel says um, specifically that he saves them from their sins. And so as we said uh From the very beginning, it's clear that this is part of Jesus' mission. It is something that Jesus does. He does lay down his life for our sins. Um, But then Matthew connects uh, this this whole event. He's just described this encounter with Joseph and the angel and Mary and the Holy Spirit and getting pregnant. And then he he concludes uh, his description here by pointing to a prophecy from Isaiah. And it's this prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Jesus. Oh, no, wait. They shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Right, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, So what is this about? Um, Well, it's interesting that, um, you know, why does Matthew use this prophecy, right? So here's, so get this. The angel shows up, says, he's going to have a son, you're going to name him Jesus, which means God saves and then Matthew says, yeah, just like the prophecy says, a child will be born and you're going to call him Emmanuel. Does this bother you? It's always bothered me, right? you know, Jesus, Emmanuel, what are we supposed to call this guy, right? Let's, get it, let's figure it out. Like, is this his middle name or, you know, how does this work? Uh, why, why does Matthew say this? Why does he use this prophecy? Now, granted, you know, virgin, virgin, check, got that, right? Baby born, baby born, got that. But the name thing is just all wrong. Why didn't he just skip that part of the verse? Well, uh, Matthew has a purpose in it, right? And his purpose is to show not only the means of God's salvation, but he points to the greater end of salvation. Yes, Jesus is the one who comes and saves the world from sin so that God can dwell with us. Jesus' coming was not a last-minute thing on, on God's mind that God... Whoa, I just got this brain, this brain idea. I'm going to send Jesus. No. From, from ancient times, God had planned this. Uh, it was prophesied. It was pointed to throughout all the Old Testament. And, and the greater purpose of it all is so that God could dwell with us. Uh, so that God could invade our lives with us and live in relationship with us... His very presence in us and with us. Right? That's, the, that's the goal of his coming. Um, now you can say, and maybe you're thinking, well, Tim, you know, you're just you spent too much time in the Bible here, and you're you're reading things into Matthew that really aren't there. You're just you're just making this up. That's really not what Matthew's saying. Uh, okay, fair enough. Well let's turn over to John, right? Because in John it's it's clear and specific. Notice what John says in, in John 1.14. He says what? The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Right? John doesn't say the Word became flesh and saved us. John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, John, in John, the point is unmistakable that the purpose of the eternal Word coming, taking on human flesh and becoming a man so that God could be with us. Uh, and it's great, the word that's used here for dwell is uh, literally the word to tent or to tabernacle. Kind of a picture of a the little Boy Scout guy with his little backpack, his little tent. Jesus came as his little tent to tent among us. Right? To pitch his tent where we are. And for anybody who's familiar with the Old Testament, and especially all of us who have just, as we've gone through the whole book of Exodus, took us forever, Right? And uh, This should bring up images of, of Exodus, uh, where Israel was traveling through the wilderness and God gave them instructions to build what? A tent, a tabernacle. Why? So that he could dwell with them. Exodus 25, 8 9 puts it this way. Let them, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, And all its furniture, so shall you make it. Was the goal of the Exodus to save Israel from slavery? Not really, right? Now, that was part of it. Certainly, God saw their oppression. He saw their bondage. And God had compassion on them. And he wanted to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. But was that really the ultimate goal of why he saved them? Well, not according to Moses. It was so that they could be a, become a set-apart people where God could pitch His tent in the midst of them. He couldn't do that as long as they were in Israel, surrounded by idolatry and pagan things and unholy things where God could not live. But He set them apart. He took them out of that so that they could be a people uh, with God in their midst. Well, likewise, Jesus did not save you just to save you. He saves us uh, so he could live with us, so he could make his home with us and be with you everywhere you go. Now, I do believe uh, very firmly that the cross should be uh, at the forefront of our thinking. When I'm talking about this, I'm not saying that the cross somehow becomes a backseat thing that is not important in our daily life. I believe uh, we should constantly be reflecting on the cross and what Jesus did, did to save us. Um, it should be a centerpiece of our worship. And I'm very thankful that our worship leaders are very in tune with this. And Sunday after Sunday, we sing about uh, the, the work of Jesus on the cross. And it should be, rightly so. Uh, we should constantly be aware of the cross not only to save us, but as the transforming power in our life to help us overcome sin. Those are extremely important things. Um, but I think it's important that we see that all those things are not the end, they're the means to a greater end. And that end is life with God. Um, and not just with God as the eternal God, creator, right? But, but John's very clear that it's a relationship with God as our Father. Uh, for all who received him, for all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Um, that's the goal. Um, so, so it's important that, and, and this, this does matter, and you might think, well, this is all just about semantics. It's just words like the cross, you know, purpose, goal. That's, but but it, it matters because it, it has huge impact in how we live our life. Uh, what the focus of our existence is. Um, We need to understand what the goal is. And we need to align ourselves properly with the correct goal. Uh, Many years ago when I was working at this Bible camp, uh, I was reminded how important it is to know what the point of something is. And one of my jobs was to teach uh, 15-year-olds how to clean carpets and clean buildings because we had to have the camp clean. And so um, it was always just very entertaining, actually, to watch 15-year-olds try to clean stuff. And um, I, I observed that what they what some of the, the, the kids thought is that the goal of cleaning is to take the vacuum and drive it over the carpet. right It doesn't really matter what the vacuum does. It's just a matter of covering the surface of the carpet with the vacuum. right But actually that, believe it or not, is not actually the goal. The goal is actually to. Clean and, and the reason I discovered this is that one day I came into a building, and one of the staff is there vacuuming overlay, just vigorously, looking very busy, right? And I'm looking at the floor, and every space where they've gone, like you know how in a vacuum, you know when you vacuum, like there's dirt, and the vacuum goes over the dirt, and poof, the, the dirt disappears. It's like magic, right? It's the coolest thing ever. It's dirty. It's a dark carpet, and so the white crumbs, it was a dining room, crumbs, they were very visible. Rolling the vacuum over these crumbs. Nothing's happening to the crumbs. They are not magically disappearing. They're just getting pulverized into finer and finer crumbs, right? And she's done this whole massive floor, room this size, done this whole thing. And it still looks exactly the same. And I said, you know, what are you doing? Oh, I'm vacuuming. I said, yeah, but it's not picking up the dirt. <laughs> oh took the vacuum part, looked at the, bottom, the whole bottom of the vacuum was just just plugged with lint and dirt and stuff. I mean, it couldn't suck up anything, right? It's like, you know, the point here is actually cleaning up the dirt. Oh. Okay. Um, it's important to know the point of something. What is the point of salvation? Is it forgiveness or is it relationship? It's relationship. God with us, and it has huge implications for how we live our life, Uh, uh, what is important to us, and the goals we pursue. And here's the problem: when we make salvation the chief end and main focus, right? When when our whole Christianity is built around this idea that Jesus came, He died for you, He wants to save you, He wants to give you forgiveness, He wants to rescue you from your sin, and that's the extent of our faith and our understanding all of it, all of Christianity, all of our faith becomes very me-centered. Right? Look what God did for me. God saved me. I must be pretty important that God would do that for me. Um, It's all about fixing my sin problem. About me getting eternal life. Fixing my sinful, broken life. And getting me forgiveness and cleansing. Now, are all those things true? Absolutely. God God does that for us. but that's not the end of it. They are vital means to a much greater end. But when they become the end themselves, it becomes it's impossible for it not to be self-centered and self-focused. Uh, salvation is all about getting saved and being forgiven is all that really matters. And sadly, a huge spectrum of the church lives here in this realm, right? All about me. All about my forgiveness. All about what Jesus did for me. Um, And what gets lost is that we live to exalt God. What gets lost is that we are to be pursuing relationship with Him. That we are to be living according to His purpose, not our own. Uh, That we are to make His glory the highest priority in our life. But that all gets lost if the whole goal and point of it is just... Me getting saved. We may even talk about getting to live with God in heaven. But that's very different from God being with us. Um, when I say that I get to live with God, it still places the focus on me and what I get and what I do to, to find God, right? to get myself to heaven, to trust Him. And it really ignores what God seeks and desires out of this whole agreement and arrangement. But here's the question. What does God want in all this? Right? What is God about? What, what is God's desire in sending Jesus uh, in the incarnation to, to pay for your sins? What does God want? Well, the really incredible thing that he tells us is that what God wants, what God desires, is to be with us. God wants to be with you. Right? Um, here's the difference. Uh, back a long time ago, really, 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 really long time ago, when uh, I was dating Denise, right? I really wanted to be with her, and the good news is I still do, <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> if I'm honest, no, I love her and I'm thankful for her. But and and, and um, when I was first dating in high school, I wanted to be with her. Um but uh but there were also other girls around that I thought oh, I could be with them too. And uh they were attractive and they seemed nice and and I thought I would like to maybe I would like to be with them. But it was plainly real to me that they did not want to be with me. Right? I remember uh I ran on a cross country team and one day at the end of practice we were all standing about six or seven minutes in a circle and I was a junior and I think the only senior on the team was this girl named Eileen James. If you know her, please don't tell her this. Well, oh, go ahead, tell her, actually. Um, and we're going around, and she was about to graduate, and, and uh, it was the final year. And she was, she was going around the circle one by one, telling what she would remember about each of us when she left. And she goes around to everybody and says these nice things about what she'll remember. She gets to me, and she says, I don't think I'll remember you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay, check her off the list. Scratch her off the list. Don't want to be with her. <laughs> um, you, see, you see, for every guy who, wants to, who longs to be with a girl, and for every girl who wants to be with a guy, the question that has to be settled is, do they want to be with me? Right? My being with them is never really enough until it's clear that they want to be with me. Well, so it is with God. Right? What matters not so much is that you want to be with God. Although you should seek Him. We should long for Him. But I'm telling you, we, we, our longing for God falls way short of what He is worthy of. But, but that really is not what matters. What really matters, and the, the most important question, is does God want to be with me? And the incredible answer to that question is yes. Yes. That's what the incarnation is about. That's why God left heaven and came to earth and took on the limits of human flesh so that He could be with you. That's the real end of salvation. So that God could be with us. And uh, this should be mind-boggling. If we really come to believe this and understand this, that the God of the universe wants to be with you, It's not that He's stuck with you. It's not that he saved you because it's like, man, you're pathetic and you need it. No, He did this because He longs to be in relationship with us. To be part of our life. Uh, And there's really something hugely liberating when our faith shifts from one that's me-centered to one that's God-centered. Where it's not about me. It's really all about God. But we come to discover that God Himself desires a relationship with me. And He's gone to incredible lengths to be with us. Because that's the first piece of this. The incarnation, the chief end of it, is so that God could be with us. But there's another point that, that John talks about, um, and that is that, so that we might know Him and behold His glory. It's one thing for God to come and be with us. But He wants us to know Him. He wants us on our part to be aware of His presence and to know who He is and to know and to see and behold His glory. Um, So John puts it this way in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, John says, We have seen his glory. Uh, and as we've seen, uh, John has images of Exodus and the Old Testament in his mind as he's writing these words. And here again, this image draws back to the account of the Exodus. Uh, if you remember, back in Exodus, there's this is an occasion where Moses asked to see God's glory. Do you remember that? In fact, Moses begs, Please let me see your glory. Uh, and I believe. John is thinking about that instance when he writes these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Um, But we need to understand the context and background of this story. Why did Moses ask for God's glory? Was he just bored one day and thought, hey, you know, God, you know what would be awesome and cool is if I could see your glory. Is that how it was? Well, if you were with us through the study through Exodus, remember that's not what happened. In fact, what happened is the people had sinned with the golden calf. Moses on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. During that time, uh, the people sin. They create this calf. They bow down. They worship it. God says, there's a problem. You need to go down. Moses goes down and he grinds up the calf, makes it into powder, puts it in the water, makes them drink it. A little golden calf Kool-Aid. Mm-mm. Uh, and and it takes several chapters. If you remember this, it takes several chapters to, uh, for Moses to finally reconcile and resolve this whole situation. Uh, and, and in several chapters, poor Moses makes several trips back up and forth down the mountain. Moses gets his exercise. Uh, and it comes gradually. As Moses intercedes, he finally appropriates forgiveness. But then God says, yeah, I forgive them, but I'm not going with you. Okay? My presence is not going to go with you. And, and, and Moses says, no, this is not acceptable. Okay, we don't need just your forgiveness. We need your presence. If you don't go with us, then I'm not going. Don't send us up. We're just going to stay right here because we might as well die here as there because without your presence, we can't make it. So finally, after more intercession and more prayer, God relents He says, okay, I will go with you. And so to confirm that promise as a sign of confirmation that God is really going to go with him, Moses says, Okay, then, please show me your glory. Okay, it was, it was in the context of the affirmation of God's presence with them that Moses asked to see his glory. And, and God does, after a fashion, answer that, that request, and Moses gets to see a, a glimpse of God's glory. And we'll see that in a minute. Um, Later, when the tabernacle was complete, the glory of God, glory of God descended and filled the tabernacle. So in Exodus, the presence of God with them was always accompanied or clearly accompanied by the glory of God before them. Those, th- those two things went together. God was, th- God was with them and they saw his glory. Now here in John, uh, John also connects God's presence and his glory. Uh, and he says that in the incarnation they beheld God's glory, full of grace and truth. Uh, and what's interesting is those words, grace and truth, if you, if you uh, put them in their Hebrew equivalent, uh, it's a phrase that comes right out of Exodus chapter 34, uh, where it says when, when Moses is on the mountain and God reveals his glory to him, this is what happens. He says, My goodness shall pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, that that phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness, is the Hebrew equivalent of full of grace and truth. Same words full of grace and truth. I will keep my steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and, trans- and transgression and sin. Um, the point is this. When the glory of God passed before Moses, what did he see? Did he see a blazing light? Did he see an extraordinary fireworks display? No, actually, if you go back and read the story, he didn't see anything because God had his eyes covered, right? Right? But God declared to him this amazing statement, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who is gracious and merciful, abounding love, forgiving sin, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. See, God's glory was ultimately a revelation of his character and nature as a compassionate, loving, faithful God. That's God's glory, all right? God's glory directed to us is ultimately the glory of his loving grace. If you want to know God's glory, if you want to see his glory, you need to see his grace. Um, And the incarnation does that. The incarnation is the visible revelation of God's grace toward us. So we'll see in a minute how he does that. But first, um, it's important to note that when Jesus came... Did the, did the world see His glory? Well, they saw it, but did they really understand what they saw? Well, apparently not, because they killed Him. <laughs> right? Um, and they didn't kill Him because they were going, wow, this is God's glory. No, they killed Him because it all went by them. And uh, for me, one of the most startling examples of this is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And I'm thinking, if you're going to if you're going to show the glory of God, this has got to be it towards the top. guy who's been dead and in the grave for four days. And Jesus calls him out of the grave and he comes out, shakes out the grave clothes, and he is fully alive. Um, that's impressive. And uh, it's hard to imagine how anybody seeing that could not bow down before Jesus and, and cry out, This is God. Who could do this? This is the Holy Lord God creator of the universe. But guess what? That's not what most people did. Even in the sight of that event. It says that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard about it, they plotted all the more to kill him. It went by them. They did not see his glory. And the problem is that sin and pride have blinded us to the glory of God. So even when it's visibly displayed right before us, we miss it. And John says this in verse 18. He says, and he reminds us of how impossible it is for us to comprehend God's glory. He says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Um, It's impossible for us because of our spiritual blindness and deadness to really comprehend and see God and his glory. So how then could could John say that we have seen his glory? He said nobody's seen his glory. Uh, But then John turns and says, but nobody's actually seen God. Is John confused or what? No, here's the deal. What is impossible for man is possible for God. And John goes on to explain it. That God reveals himself to us in the incarnation. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus made God known. He revealed him to us. And he makes an amazing statement about the Trinity again here, that God, who is at the Father's side, revealed Him. God the Son, literally in the bosom of the Father, in the Father's embrace, came to earth and revealed Him to us. Uh, Jesus can reveal to us the Father uh, because He's seen Him. He's been close to His heart. He's been with Him from eternity. But of course, He can also reveal to us who God is because He is God. He is in himself, in his being, who God is. So how does he do this? How does he make God known to us? Well, it says he, he's make us, he, he makes him known. And the word is was literally the, the word from which we get the word exegesis. Can okay, any of you know what the word exegesis means? You Bible college students. Okay. It means, uh, it's what preachers are supposed to do, right? Preachers are supposed to exegete Scripture, what it means is we take a passage that we don't understand and we study and we pray, and we discern the meaning, and then we bring it before the church and we explain it. We we explain the meaning. We, we help people understand what Scripture is saying. That's exactly what John says Jesus is doing. He exegetes God for us. He he puts him in language that we can understand. He explains him in terms that our minds can grasp. Um, and how does he do that? Well, he does it through the incarnation. Right? He took the infinite, perfect, mind-boggling, incomprehensible nature of God and he wrapped him up in a human body, human flesh and blood, and he did what? He lived his life out and he showed us what God is like by His very life and actions. You want to know what God is like? You want to see His glory? All you have to do is look at the life of Jesus. Everything He said and did is a revelation of God, explaining God to us and making Him clear and plain so that we can see and understand. Um, Of course, it takes eyes of faith to do this. That's why most people can't see it. It's only when you have the faith to see and understand who Jesus was, to receive his salvation and receive the regenerating new birth of life that he gives us vision, eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. Uh, but for those who have eyes to see, it's everywhere in the Gospels, right? We see it in Jesus' birth, uh, Jesus coming to us as an act of God's love for the world that's in rebellion against him. As he came, became a little baby born in that manger. We see it when an exhausted Jesus tries to get away, away from the crowds, and he gets in a boat, and he tells his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. you remember that? And he just wants to get away. He wants some quiet time. Any of you could use some quiet time, right? He gets to the other side of the boat, He's looking forward to a retreat. And what does he find? 10,000 people have rushed there and got there before him. And as he get back in the boat, (laughs) that's what I would have done. I would have said, okay, turn that boat around, right? No, it says he saw them and he what? He had compassion on them, for they were like lost sheep without a shepherd. And he gets out of the boat, and even though he's tired and worn out, he ministers to them. He teaches them. He heals them. He even gives them supper. Feeds the 5,000. Um, that's the glory of God. Um, uh, we see the glory of His grace when a leper bows before Him and begs to be healed. And Jesus just doesn't speak healing words over him. But what does Jesus do? It says He reaches out and He touches the leper. Okay? You weren't supposed to touch lepers. They lived without any human contact, but Jesus had compassion and He touched him. He showed God's grace and mercy and goodness. Of course, most of all, we see it in His obedience to the Father to the point of death on the cross, where Jesus died for our sins, where He laid down His life. He gave His very blood for us. See, all of those things from beginning to end are revelations. They're explanations of who God is. All too often we read the Gospels and we think that Jesus' life is an example we're supposed to copy Some of it is, right? Some of what Jesus does, he does as an example for us. But like the whole going to the cross thing, uh, don't don't try that one at home. Um, Some of it he did not give as an example. Some of it he did as revelation, to show us what God is like, and we're not like Him. We can't copy everything He does. So that's the great purpose, the second great purpose of the incarnation, to put on display the glory of God, to make him known, so that we can behold him. Right? So that we can grasp something of the character and nature of God as it's lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does this have to do with how we live our life? Just a couple of thoughts as we close. Um, I hope you understand that as crucial for us as it is that, that God saved us, that's not the end goal. Right? It's vital. And you can't get to the end goal without going through the cross and without taking the cross with you. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is that God is with us and that we can behold His glory and know Him. Um, that's really the main point. Um so how do we live our life in, in light of this? Well, here's the, here's the thing. For most of us, at least some of the time, life is very troublesome. Amen? Life can be hard, challenging. Um, there's a lot about life I don't really like. And it can be at times very discouraging. Um, problems can pile up on top of us. And oftentimes, we can't solve them. Um, maybe uh, you're dealing with health problems and you cannot find answers and there's no cures and uh, it's exhausting, right? Maybe you face very difficult financial problems that threaten to you know, unravel you. Maybe you have to go home. Maybe, maybe you don't know what you're going to do if you can't solve these financial problems. Maybe you're dealing with relationship struggles and conflicts that just tear you tear you apart inside. Maybe you're dealing with all of those. <laughs> right? Life's life's difficult. Um, and here's the problem. If if our focus is that, that God came to save us, then what we see with all those problems is, is is that God has to fix those things because that's why He came. And if He doesn't fix them, I'm I'm being ripped off. Because that's what this is what it's all about. Right? And, and you'll be even more discouraged because oftentimes God does not fix the problems. Not as quickly as we want anyway. He promises He will take care of us. But instant solutions are not always what God gives us. And if, we're, if, we, if we believe that God's whole reason for existing is to fix our problems and rescue us, we will find ourselves very discouraged or frustrated and feeling like God has failed us. Um, but if we understand that God's purpose is not just to save and fix our problems, but it is His glory, and it is His presence, it changes everything. Because no longer does it my, do my problems matter so much. Because um, my focus is not about me anymore, but it's God and His glory. And that really does change everything. When we live our life for His glory we can put our problems in the perspective of, of God's program and plan in the world. Right? That we do take up our cross and follow Jesus. Meaning we do suffer for Him. Meaning it is part of life, but it's part of how we, we give glory to God as we follow Him. Suffering is part of what God has planned for us. And He has a purpose and a reason in it. I hate that. <laughs> I don't like that. I like, to, I like to fix my problems and make my life comfortable and easy part. I like that part better. Are we living for God's glory? God wants to glorify Himself surely through how He saves us and how He works in our life. But oftentimes He does that in the midst of great struggles and problems and difficulties. The early martyrs praised God that they got to die for Jesus because they knew it would give Him glory. Do we see how God wants to use the struggles and challenges of our life to bring glory to his name? Um, secondly, God wants to be with us. Um, what God reveals to us about his glory is his perfect good character, that he is a loving, compassionate, caring God. Um, And what we need to hold to in the midst of those struggles and doubts and fears and worries is that God is the, um, you know, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate, merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's our God. And he wants you to know that even in the midst of our difficult struggles and frustrations. And the amazing thing is that when we behold God's glory and we really come to get a vision, not just in our intellect, but in in the very depth of our being, we have a, a vision of the glory of God and His character as a loving Father who wants to be with us and wants the very best for us. The cool thing is it gives us this amazing confidence that my life is okay. Even in death, my life is okay. Because God loves me and He is with me and He's concerned about me and He's never going to leave me or forsake me. That's why Jesus came. That's why He came and took and brought on Himself human flesh. Our problem shrink strength in the light of His glory. And we have this confidence of knowing how much He cares for us and that He's with us. Do you know that God is with you? Do you have absolute conviction that not only is He with you, but He actually wants to be with you? There may not be anybody else on this planet who actually wants to be with you on some days. But God wants to be with you. Not because you're good or perfect or nice or friendly. Because He's a compassionate, loving God who wants you to be His child. He longs to be in relationship with you. Um, Do you see His glory? Are you even looking for it? Do you know what God is like and do you understand His good and loving purposes for your life? I think the more we grow in these things, we we will stand in awe at the wonder of the Incarnation when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pray.